0: Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Welcome back. As we begin chapter 2 in the book of James, we're going to get right at the heart of the application of what pure religion and true worship is before our holy God. The heart application of true worship is really situated in the theme of love, which is interwoven throughout the biblical narrative. For our study in James, he refers to this theme of love as the royal law. In today's text of chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we're going to be exploring this idea. Before we get to that particular text, let me remind you that pure religion simply means true worship. That true worship in, to God aligns our thinking, emotions, and devotion and actions with that of his character and nature. That worldly religion can align these things. In fact, it is this reality that drives the entire book of James. Remember, the overarching point in the concern of James in his letter is that being like Christ demonstrates that we have been truly changed by Christ and responding to God in true faith through right belief produces right actions. James primarily tackles the application of living out pure religion before God by loving others. The topics that he uses to address love are uncomfortable and at times, at least in modern times, are a bit controversial, especially amongst Christians. Specifically, topics like greed, anger, ungodly speech, and discrimination against others, which boils down to a prejudice, attitude, and actions, are the topics of the day. Again, the people he addresses are Jewish believers who are wealthy and poor. Both groups seem to be struggling to love one another by loving their riches over their fellow Christians and acting judgmental, and the other seems to be lashing out because of mistreatment. So let's dive into the text. This is a robust text, James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, do not show prejudice if you possess faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your assembly wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, and a poor person enters in filthy clothes, do you pay attention to the one who is finely dressed and say, you sit here in a good place, and to the poor person you stand over there, or sit on the floor? If so, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? In verse 5, James continues, and he says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, did not God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich oppressing you and dragging you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the good name of the one you belong to? But if you fulfill the royal laws expressed in this scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. For the one who obeys the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a violator of the law. Speak and act as those who will be judged by a law that gives freedom. For judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. This is surely a lot to process. And I think it would be helpful to wrap this text around the very last statement that James makes, chapter 2, verse 12, which says, mercy triumphs over judgment. I think this phrase and this statement is key for understanding the text here because essentially it's describing the character and nature of God. And what he has actually done with all of mankind through the hope and promise of the gospel in his Son, Jesus Christ. God has exercised great restraint, patience, compassion, grace, and mercy towards mankind under the impending absoluteness of his holy judgment. We justly deserve God's judgment and the punishment of death. God is justified in condemning those who break his law in their sin as it maligns his character and nature. He's just to punish the guilty with death. But God exercises mercy, and that mercy brings forgiveness and life to those who believe. This mercy is triumphant over his judgment. The Apostle Paul beautifully lays out the heart of God in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 verses 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. And verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For really, will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. And in verse 18, Paul says, Consequently, just as condemnation for all people came through one transgression, so too through the one righteous act came righteousness leading to life for all people. And verse 21 so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. This is how he has chosen to deal with our sin, by giving mankind an opportunity through his Son to experience great grace. This is the chief foundation in which James wants the Christian and his audience to treat one another as well. That mercy triumphs over judgment. Essentially, the core motive behind our sin against others is unrighteous judgment against them. It's easy to make judgments on people regarding their value and worthiness. We attempt to determine how they should be treated based on our own assessment. James says this kind of thinking and behavior in their situation came from evil motives. Chapter 2, verse 4. Evil motives that are born out of things like a love for money and a devaluing of other image bearers of which are brothers and sisters in Christ as he addresses them at the beginning of chapter 2. What James is clearly pointing out here is that their human judgment is faulty. The fault lies in their own selfish ambition, fear, comfort, and perceived self-importance and even significance, much like what the world uses in its value system. All of this is done at the expense of others, hence the problem occurring amongst them. It's insulting to God to claim Christ and his goodness and then turn around and treat people in a manner that is opposite his heart and commands. In fact, Jesus left his majesty, his power and honor to share in the poverty and vulnerability and suffering that humans experience. Philippians 2 verses 4 through 11 has this wonderful Reality of what Jesus did. Let's read it together. Verse 4 of Philippians 2 says, Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had. Though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Note that Paul says that Jesus was honored and magnified. He was held up in great exaltation because of his love for mankind through his humility, sacrifice, and compassion. These are the kind of qualities and actions that God is pleased with, not unkind judgment of others. In the context of James, they actually seem to be determining the worth and value of the poor based on their wealth or lack thereof, and they're arrogant because of it. They're greedy and judgmental, now think about the implication of this. How is this rationalized? Well, is it possible that they came to this conclusion based off of a faulty view that says wealth is an indication of one's work ethic, one's integrity, or personal level of responsibility and stewardship of their resources? In fact, in the ancient world, it was common that wealth, health, abundance, victory, success, and achievement were directly linked to the favor of the deity people worshipped. Wealthy were wealthy because they pleased their deity and that deity was responding to them in favorable provision. So the wealthy must be doing something right, right? Surely poor people, weak people, diseased people are that way because they lack solid character and God is allowing them to be poor because of their neglect to get it together and make wise choices. They deserve their poverty. Is this not what's embedded itself in the psyche and thinking and attitudes of the American church on some level? Jesus flips this notion on its head into a different paradigm, a backwards, upside down, illogical way of thinking that says God is a God of the poor, the poor in health, the poor in wealth, and the poor in spirit. And he's here to rescue and to restore and help and comfort. He's here to help. He is driven by compassion and love, not anger and greed. This kind of thinking in the context of the ancient world of spirituality was crazy. He chooses the poor to make a powerful contrast with the undeserving and lavish favor he bestowed on them. Salvation, transformation, hope, and an abundant life in the future is the opposite of their poverty. To further explore the depth of God's heart for the poor, let's consider why he chose Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9, God says, "...it is not because you were more numerous than all the other people that the Lord favored and chose you. For in fact, you were the least numerous of all peoples. Rather, it is because of his love for you and his faithfulness to the promise he solemnly vowed to you and your ancestors, that the Lord brought you out with great power, redeeming you from the place of slavery, from the power of the Pharaoh king of Egypt." So realize that the Lord your God is the true God, the faithful God who keeps covenant faithfully with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God chose Israel out of his love and to highlight the promise he made Abraham to bless the nations through. Again, the fact that God would want a people that no one else thought were significant. No one else thought they were worthy or strong or appealing or powerful. It's mind-numbing To contrast that with the very character and nature of the holy, powerful, and sovereign God. In other words, God is God of power and wealth and sovereignty. Why would he want such lowly people? The people he chose to represent him were weak and, and poor. Furthermore, Ezekiel describes Israel as a baby left to die in its blood in a field. And he rescues it and wipes it off and raises it as its own. Ezekiel 16, verses 6 through 8 says, I passed by you and saw you kicking around helplessly in your blood. I said to you as you lay there in your blood, Live! Live! I said to you as you lay there in your blood, Live! I made you plentiful like sprouts in a field. You grew tall and came of age so that you could wear jewelry. Then I passed by in verse 8 and watched you, noticing that you had reached the age for love. I spread my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I swore a solemn oath to you and entered into a marriage covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Had the ancestors of ancient Israel, James's Jewish audience, so readily forgotten where they came from? They came from an abandoned, forgotten people. Their forefathers were nomads and wanderers, and they never saw their reward of peace and prosperity and blessing. And comfort in their lifetime, they ended up enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. In fact, they were promised a land flowing with milk and honey. They were promised protection from their enemies. They were promised to have abundance. They were promised that they would be God's chosen people. In Deuteronomy 7 and 14 and 28. They were supposed to be blessed and holy. However, eventually Israel did indeed enter the land that they were promised but only to rebel and turn away and forget who they were in their poverty. God rescued them from Egypt, redeemed them into a new life of freedom and peace, and they were given the task to be light and a witness to the nations, Deuteronomy 4 and 6, as was promised through Abraham. Upon ancient Israel's disobedience, God disciplined them through several captivities that scattered their people across the world, through several hundred years of warring nations and invading superpowers. Israel has longed to return to their national identity, protection, abundance, and blessing that the land first gave them upon arrival. They've searched for this ever since. They longed for it during Jesus' day, and they longed for it during James' day. The point in all of this is that their focus and dependence was in the comfort of their own power, resource, and strength, not in God's. This was embedded in the Jewish thinking particularly that outward obedience to God through disingenuous religion would restore these things. And if they were wealthy, they felt secure. The rich in James' context missed the point. They missed the heart of God. They missed true comfort and strength and blessing that comes from God. This is the great lesson in worldly wealth and riches. It can't save. It has no power. It can't deliver the things that it promises. And it's not that God doesn't love wealth or love the wealthy, or want his people to have money. Rather, God hates the love of wealth because of what it does to our ability to see our own poverty. The illusion of wealth brings a false security. The illusion of wealth and the love of wealth can lead to sin. James's audience receives very serious indictments because of their attitudes and behavior. He points to their acts, their prejudiced thinking, ungodly distinctions, and judgmental behavior that we must take a closer look at. Let's define what these things are and look more closely at their implication as he prepares us for the royal law of love in our true worship to God. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash partner.